All right, let's go ahead and get started. I'm running a little behind here, that's okay. I will open this up in uh, some prayer and then we will dive in. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for um, giving us life again this, this morning and, and bringing us here to, to gather um, with your people being able to, to worship you in spirit and truth, um, sit under your, your word preached, to, to sing songs that are, are pleasing to you and to, to pray to you. Um, we all count it a, a privilege to be able to do this. Um, we pray that we do not take it for granted. Pray for our time this morning in the book of Acts that we would... Um, grow in our knowledge and understanding of the book and how it fits in the, the broader story of the scriptures so that we can have a fuller understanding of your word so that we may, that we may fully cherish it and, and order our lives under it and to submit to it and to cherish it and delight in it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Today we're going to cover chapter 6 of the book um, the mission of the triune God. And today we're going to think through the theme of the church, or we could say the formation and growth of the new covenant community. Something we've already talked a lot about through this study and through this book. And it's because it's truly one of the most significant themes in the book of Acts. I don't think you can read Acts without noticing the, the, the church playing a vital and central role role. But before diving in to, to the chapter, I wanted to remind us of one of the main purposes of the book, or, or reasons this book was written, was to show how the New Testament, and Acts in particular, is situated within the larger story of Scripture, or, or the larger canon of Scripture. That's why we've been tracing, and will continue to track, how the book of Acts fits into this larger narrative, this larger story of the Bible. And I think one of the main ways we can be clued into this, this type of whole Bible context of reading, is by seeing what the New Testament authors themselves are connecting and how they, they interpret the Old Testament. So maybe you've noticed in the study a lot of emphasis on how Luke and the apostles cite the, the Old Testament frequently, quite frequently. And an analysis of how these Old Testament texts or themes are, are continued, or we could say they're fulfilled in the New Covenant or New Testament era. So it's very important to keep in mind when, when thinking about this chapter, because at a big picture level, what Schreiner is doing is showing how the, the formation of the New Covenant community and, and how that, that, that happened in actual history how, how all of that was promised in the Old Testament, and therefore it should be expected as we read the pages of Acts. Again, emphasizing something I said last week and, and probably the week before that, and that is what we see in Acts, especially regarding the people of God, is not new. It's not, it's not a novel in the sense that it was a part of God's plan all along. God didn't think, oh, I messed up with the, 
the old covenant people, Israel, so I need to start fresh with this, this new group of people. That's not how I think we should be reading our, our Bibles. God's plan of salvation is the same. God's plan to save a people for himself is the same. And this makes sense, right? Because we confess that God does not change. His plan does not change. And so we see that as we connect what we find in Acts as the fulfillment of what was prophesied or, or pictured in the Old Testament. So now thinking back to this chapter specifically and following the argument of the book, when we think about the church in Acts, we need to think about it following the logical order of the other prominent themes that we've seen in Acts. So the church, which is again a massive theme in Acts, it covers a great portion of the, of the pages and content of Acts, but it, it begins primarily with God, with the triune God. And unfortunately, most ecclesiologies, most, most studies of the church actually don't begin here, which I personally think is a big shame, because I do think it's important to know that the church begins most fundamentally with the triune God and the mission to save to save and rescue a people through the sending of God the Son and the Spirit. To, to redeem a, a people, redeem a community. And we see, or, or as we see the message of Acts progress, we see the church is built upon the, the triune God's word, which declares the message of salvation. So you see then how the church then comes logically after these, these other themes. And what we see with the, with the church in Acts is that it plays a vital role because it's, it's God's chosen institution in this age and on this earth that, that primarily furthers his kingdom, that, that furthers his, his reign in this age. Right? A, a literal new community is, is formed that did and has and will continue to, to transform the, the world in this age through the proclamation of the gospel and salvation going to the ends of the earth. The church is, is made up of those who, who turn to Christ in faith, are formed by the power of the Spirit to become the, the new or, or true Israel. This is what we're going to see in Acts, the true temple of God and the final people of God. So in every sense of the word, it's an it's a otherworldly institution, the church is. And we all get to be a part of it, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing when we're reading Acts. And so what Schreiner does in this chapter, I think, is, is pretty helpful is, is he looks at the theme of the church in Acts, and he, he follows what he sees to be Luke's progression of the expanse and, and complexion of the church. So what we see in Acts 1 through 7, chapters 1 through 7, chronicles the restoration of Israel as God comes first to the Jew in order that they, they might bless the nations. And, and as we'll see, this is what his word has always promised would occur. Then Acts 8 through 12, chapters 8 through 12, we see what Schreiner calls the church assembling outcasts 
or specifically the, the Samaritans, the, the Ethiopian eunuch, Saul, who's a, a sworn enemy of the church, an entire Gentile household in Cornelius. And then, and then finally, Acts 13 through 28, we get detailed accounts, really through, through Paul's missionary journeys, of the, of the full welcoming in of the Gentiles as the, the, the Gentile mission commences. And so that's kind of how Schreiner breaks down the structure of Acts as we see the church established to these, to these growing groups of individuals. And by the end of this, the, 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 the message is really quite clear. God establishes His new covenant community that comprised various people groups. That's really just the big idea that we're going to see this morning. And so let's first think about the, the restoration of Israel. The restoration of Israel. This is I think we'll probably spend the most time here in this section. And, and the first thing to say is when we think about Acts 1 through 7 as a whole unit within the, the larger narrative of Acts, we see two themes, or we could say really two locations that play a big role in the narrative, a prominent role in the story. And those two places are Jerusalem and, and then the temple specifically. So Jerusalem and the temple. To summarize what we see in this section in a sentence, Schreiner writes, God's, temples bless, God's temple blessings flow from and through Israel. God's temple blessings flow from and through Israel. And so what we see is that chapters 1 through 7 demarcate the, the remnant of Israel. Now this needs to be clarified, I think, for us. This is not Jews or Israelites being included in the new covenant people of God by virtue of their ethnicity or by virtue even of their obedience to the old covenant law. No, as we see in Peter's first sermon, they must repent of their sins. They must trust and faith in Christ. And so then when we see some Israelites, some Jews, respond positively to the message of salvation, they, they receive Christ in faith, like the 3,000 that were added to the church and, and saved and baptized after Peter's sermon in Acts 2. But we also see others, especially those associated with the temple and temple leadership, the, the religious leaders of the day, they typically reject the message of salvation as declared by the apostles. Now, thinking of Acts 1-7 through 7 in this big picture way, we can see several fulfillment events and themes that, that, again, clue us into what's going on with Israel and the temple and how the, the new covenant fulfills or even transforms these, these institutions, both Israel and the temple. So first we see Acts begins with Jesus commanding His disciples to wait for the promised Spirit, which as we've already seen in this series, that the sending of the Spirit is, is the key promise that inaugurates Israel's renewal or, or, or Israel's restoration. This is much in line with, with the prophecies of the New Covenant in a place like Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34, 
or Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27. We can also see, I think, more subtle indications of Israel's restoration in the choosing of Matthias as the 12th apostle in Acts 1, verses 15 through 26. This isn't the only point with the narrative of Matthias in Acts 1, but it makes sense of the location and of this event in, in history and in the narrative that's given to us. But one big point that Luke is making is the choice of a 12th apostle makes symbolic Israel whole again. It's common amongst a wide variety of theologian commentators that, that to conclude that Jesus' pick of 12 disciples was significant as it's an intentional parallel of the 12 heads of the, the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. So with the inclusion, the entrance of Matthias as an apostle, taking the 12th spot, is another more, more subtle sign that true Israel is being restored. Pentecost also plays a massive role. I'm smiling because this is like every week we talk about Pentecost for at least 10 minutes, but it's really important in Acts. It plays a very significant role in Israel's restoration as it gathered in exiles, right, that were scattered abroad throughout other nations. Right? This is a, was a festival that gathered Jews from all the surrounding nations to come to the temple grounds to worship Yahweh or to, to participate in the festival. So it's important to note that, that the only non-Jews ethnically that were present at Pentecost were proselytes, or who, who were Gentiles who had become full converts to Judaism, converts to the old, old covenant law. So no pagan Gentiles were present at Pentecost. That's really an important thing to note. And the, the spirit falling then on this occasion is significant as we've stated already in detail in our talk about the Holy Spirit, or lesson about the Holy Spirit. But just to refresh, it's significant because it is in fulfillment of places like Isaiah 43, 5 through 7, and Isaiah 44, 1 through 4, which talk about the regathering of Israel, and God's promise that He would bring His offspring from the east, and the west, and the north, and the south. He would gather them again together in one covenant community. So the Spirit's coming at Pentecost comes in some sense to reconstitute the gathered people of God as was long promised in places like Isaiah 43 and 44. But Pentecost is also maybe equally or probably more important because it symbolizes the establishment of the new temple, and specifically the new temple community, which is going to be tied with the church. Because those who gathered, who experienced salvation, received the very presence of God through the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And this is really significant, because if you think back to the Old Testament narrative, in Ezekiel, we know that, that God's Spirit departs from the temple. And in Ezra, when the, when the temple is, is rebuilt, His presence does not return. That, that indicates for us that, that's significant because it, it indicates not everything's right at the end of the Old Testament. Not everything is, is as it should be. But now the Spirit descends and indwells His people. God's, God's presence, which 
the, the, temple, the temple was the location of God's presence in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. God's presence has now changed locations in a very significant way in this new era, in this new age. The temple is now the actual believers in Christ. Christians are the temple. When I say that, I thought everyone would just gasp, because that is a gasping thing. Where, where God's presence dwells. Specifically, and we see this later in the New Testament, but specifically in the, in the gathering of Christians in the church. And this, this is explained much further in Paul, or in Paul's writings, but the point in Acts is that a new era of, re, of, of restored Israel and, and the return of the presence of God with His people is now occurring. It's occurring at this moment in history at Pentecost. We can also see fulfillment of the restoration of Israel in, I'm pretty sure y'all are going to guess where I'm going if y'all have been with me here. We can see this in Peter's sermon in Acts 2 and the connection Peter makes with the book of Ezekiel. So I do have this down on the chart for you. I think this is helpful just to see and I don't have to... uh, Go to all these references. You can do that. It's chart 6.2. But what we see is that Peter is preaching to the Jews. And in Acts 2.36, we see this phrase, to all the house of Israel, which, which connects back to Ezekiel 37.21, and really I would say Ezekiel 37 in, in general, with the regathering of Israel's exiles and the restoration of the northern and southern kingdom. The whole house of Israel is being regathered, which we're going to actually see occur in a moment here in Acts 8. But in context of Ezekiel, this is also where we see the, the resurrection of Israel in Ezekiel 37:15 through22. The, the reign of the Davidic king in Ezekiel 37:24 uh, through25. And the dwelling of God with his people. And we find all of these restoration images that are found in Ezekiel, promises of a future day for for Israel, we find them in Acts 2. We find them in Peter's sermon. So again, you can see these connections down on on the sheet. I think they're very significant because they clue us into what's actually happening with Israel. But what we see is what Schreiner calls a textbook example of how God has fulfilled His promises to Israel in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The the Davidic King, the promised Davidic King, Jesus Christ, and the gift and sending of His Spirit. So all of Peter's sermon and, and all the Old Testament scripture that he quotes explain that, that what is occurring through Christ's death, his, his resurrection, His ascension, is a part of God's eternal plan of salvation. And as a result of His wonderful exposition of Old Testament Scripture, right, that actually helps us read our Old Testaments, which is awesome. But, but it also, from, from Peter and the, the connecting of all the Old Testament texts, finding their fulfillment in Christ... That the result then, or the response of his sermon on those who are hearing it and in his presence when he was preaching it, the result is that the hearers of his sermon must repent and may be baptized in the name of Jesus. 
that's really big. They must repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Right, Acts 2.38. And that's big because that is how the restoration, that's how the renewal of Israel actually occurs for the Jewish people. This is how the Jewish people enter the new covenant people. So we could say, just like it occurs for you and me. So the big point here is that this new covenant people of God, which includes elect Israel, they are defined around Christ. They're defined around the ascended Christ. They, they participate in the new covenant community by repentance and faith in Jesus and by going through the waters of baptism, which is the, the sign of the new covenant or the symbol or, or picture of salvation in Christ. It's the ordinance given to, one of the ordinances given to this new covenant community, given to the church. Or we could say baptism is a symbol of the salvation that Christ has won by bringing dead hearts to life through the regenerating work of the Spirit. So I'll pause here. I've gone through a lot. And any questions, comments? In, in Acts 11? Or... 2.11. I see. I'm trying to get my... Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, I would have to look at it. Yeah, that's probably how I would interpret it. Um, I would have to study it more to give you a more confident answer. I, I am taking kind of Shriner's argument here, presumed. But definitely... Go to the Bible first, so that's good. Blake. I'm going to push this on for time's sake, sorry. Um, we're a little behind, but good question. Um, so we're not going to go into every detail of the structure of the chapters 3 through 7, um, which is kind of the, the next portion of the larger section of 1 through 7. I did provide a chart here. Um, that shows for us how the temple begins to play the, the central role in the narrative of, of chapters 3 through 7. So we have narrative accounts of, of conflict at the temple and the restoration of the temple followed by narratives that, that describe inclusion and exclusion of the new temple community, the, the new covenant community where God's presence now dwells on earth, right? Just simply called the church. Schreiner goes into a bit more detail going through, through each account. But I think the big point is really quite simple. And that is these narrative accounts surrounding the temple are part of the same theme of the restoration of Israel. As, as God establishes the new covenant community, the church. And what Schreiner and, and, and many other commentators, theologians call the new temple community. Again, where, where God's presence dwells among His people. And these temple narratives help show us something that Jesus teaches clearly in uh, John 4, that the, the location of the temple is soon, it, it, it does not matter, but it is the, the community that is formed, the true restored Israel that worships God in spirit and in truth. That's what ultimately now, now matters in this new covenant community. This is where God's, God's presence, His reign, His rule is now resides in this age. So just overall, 
Acts one through um, yeah Acts one through seven we can say is about the the renewal the restoration of Israel, and its narrative accounts deal with God's temple people, the church, and the invitation for Israel so so ethnic Jews to be restored to God through faith in the Messiah Jesus. And what we see then as history unfolded, as it's recorded for us in the scriptures, in Acts, what we see is that many Jews did welcome and receive the message of salvation and were made part of the new covenant community through baptism. But others also rejected it. Right? They, they stayed in their unbelief and their hardness of heart. And then from chapter 8 onward, we see the expansion of salvation and thus the expansion of the new covenant community, the, the establishment of the church on earth to non-Jews, or what Schreiner calls outcasts in this chapter. And it's important to note that Schreiner's not just making up this word outcast to sound cool, because it doesn't sound cool, but he's getting it from Isaiah 56, Isaiah 56 verse 8, which states, the Lord God who, who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And so Shriner's placing um, the narrative account of Acts 8 through 12 in this verse, and really the, the section, not just Isaiah 56, 8, but really Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, playing out in actual history, especially, I would say, Acts 8 primarily. Acts 8 is really the key chapter here. The message of salvation is now spreading to the outcast to, to gather them into the new covenant community. And we see this in five narrative accounts in these chapters. Two dealing with Philip, Philip with the Samaritans, and then Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. The, the conversion of Saul, and then Cornelius and his household being saved, and then the church being established and formed in Antioch. Right, all of these play a significant role in, in this section of the church being established to the outcast as it then goes out to the Gentiles. Now chapter 8, I think, can be also... I think, be connected to that same one through seven grouping. And then it kind of functions like a transitional book where it looks back to the first seven chapters and then forward to the Gentile expansion. So Philip, the Philip narrative has two parts, one dealing with the inclusion of the Samaritans and the other, the, the Ethiopian eunuch. Both can be connected to Old Testament text. To Old Testament prophecies, which is really key for our understanding of them. And both would be in this category of, of Isaiah 56, of, of the outcast category. So many of you know, probably know the history of the Samaritans in the Bible, so we won't go full dive into that. But, but right, they, they rejected the Jewish temple, and they were separated from Jews socially, geographically, religiously. This goes all the way back to 1 Kings 12, and the rebellion of the northern kingdom against the, the southern kingdom of Israel. Samaritans were descendants of Jeroboam's rebellion against the house of David. So it's not as if the division wasn't warranted. It definitely was. But things change with the coming of Jesus, the, the new true Davidic king. 
Again, I think Jesus' interaction in John 4 with the Samaritan woman is very helpful here to know something, something has changed in this relationship. And that Samaritans are going to be welcomed back into the people of God. And as we'll see, this is, gonna, this is prophesied all over the place that this is going to happen. And in Acts 8, we see the Samaritans receives the, the receive the word of salvation through Philip. And we see they receive it with much joy. Indicates that they, they received it rightly. They, they submitted to it. They, became, they got saved. They submitted their life to it. And this is important because before the Gentile outreach can happen, first, Israel's north and southern kingdom must be reintegrated. I think it's a helpful way that, that Schreiner puts it. And we see this in Old Testament prophecy. And this is back, we're going back to Ezekiel 37, which, which um, we just talked about in Acts 2. So this is right after the, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. We read in verses 15 through 17 of a time when Judah, the south, and Ephraim, which is the, the north, will be joined together as one people of God. And then a little later in verses 22 through 24, we read, And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be a king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. This is what we're seeing in Acts 8, which is a... a massive time then in salvation history, an utterly unique thing that happened in salvation history that God had promised long before. The northern and, and southern kingdom would be one people in the new covenant under the kingship of the Davidic king, which we know is, is Messiah Jesus, is Christ. And I think knowing this then helps us with a really difficult text in Acts 8, 14-17. Because what we see there is that the Samaritan believers have a delayed reception of the Spirit. It comes after their water baptism, so, so after salvation. And what actually happens is the apostles come, lay hands on them before they receive the Spirit. Now this delay has been very confusing for Christians, and I think rightly so. And some take this and develop a doctrine of a second blessing of the Spirit, because it seems the Samaritans were saved and then later received the Spirit. Some say there's a two-stage experience of faith, or, or something along these lines. Water baptism and then baptism by the Holy Spirit, sub subsequently after the, the baptism of water. It's very common in Pentecostal denominations and circles. But I think it's a wrong way to read what's happening here. Though this is a difficult text to interpret, and I do think we should approach it with much humility. Um, but as we just noted, this was a, a very exceptional circumstance that was unique in salvation history as a fulfillment of Old Covenant prophecy and promises. And so it makes sense, given the history, why Samaria must wait on what must 
wait on the Spirit, and Jerusalem also must witness this happening. This makes sense, I think, if we put our whole Bibles together. The effect is the southern kingdom descendants, so the apostles in Jerusalem, are, convin are convinced of God's love, convinced of God's election of the Samaritans, as they witness the pouring out of the Spirit on them, which marks the, the new age. And then the, the function for the Samaritans is they see they are now connected. They're not separate from Jerusalem. They're not separate from the Jerusalem church, which is a very, very powerful moment in salvation history. It's really a, a beautiful text, a beautiful um, story in, in Acts. But given all that, I think the last thing we should do is then make this text paradigmatic or, or the precedent for how we should view the Spirit's indwelling and the delay of it after baptism. It's not what occurs, and I don't think that's what we should expect. Um, so that's just a little aside to see actually how I think reading our Bibles well, putting the whole story of the Bible together can actually guard us from making doctrinal errors from what seems obvious of taking, of taking the text, just reading it without any historical context or even canonical context. So what we're doing is very applicable. Now, Philip then goes on to the eunuch and meets a eunuch from Ethiopia by, by the Spirit's leading. And, and I think, I'm trying to remember, I think an angel of the Lord leads him there. This is Acts 8. Um, eunuchs were emasculated men who were really viewed poorly in, in that culture in the time of writing of Acts. They were con considered effeminate, non-men. Yet it's important to note I think I, I find this important. He's described in the text as a man. A good lesson for, to, for us today that you can't actually change your sex no matter what you, you, you change or you take off or add. But the eunuch, we, right, we read he's also from Ethiopia, so he's a complete different ethnicity. But notice in this account where, where Philip seeds him, he, he's reading Isaiah 53. That the eunuch is. And Philip explains how Jesus is the fulfillment of these verses. The man believes, he gets saved, and he's baptized right there. Now, now notice in this, the verses close to what the eunuch was reading, so, so right down from Isaiah 53, Shriner points this out, I think this is really beautiful and helpful. Right after that, Isaiah 56, which we just read verse 8 about the outcast, right? But notice in verse 3 of Isaiah 56, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Those are uh, really amazing verses, powerful verses, emotionally powerful, where the Lord says he will give 
faithful eunuchs something greater than family, which they can't have, they, they won't be cut off from God. Right? Notice that language of cut off, how significant that would be for a eunuch. Right? The Lord is brilliant in how he describes his salvation for his people. But we see that the salvation of the eunuch that, that Philip baptizes is what we see foretold back in Isaiah 56. Like right after what he was reading in Isaiah 53. It's just an amazing fulfillment of what we see happening in history. So I'm going to fast forward here a bit. Um, we have in chapter 10 the account of Peter and Cornelius, which we've, we've already covered a bunch, so we won't camp out here. But, but now we have a Roman centurion being saved, and his household being saved, and the Spirit de- descending upon them. The account confirms that the the Gentiles are now brought under the lordship of Christ without having to follow the the Jewish Old Covenant law standards or practices. That also becomes a big theme in in Acts. It's a very big deal. And then the final narrative in this section also serves as a transition to the rest of the book of Acts, which is going to deal with the Gentile missions of Paul. But in Acts 11... Verses 19 through 30, we see the planting and the establishment of the church at Antioch, what's commonly known as the Antioch Church. And this is important because for, for thus far in Acts, this, this, thus far in the narrative, the Jerusalem church has been the center of Christian witness. But from now on, Antioch is going to be the center of the narrative. Now, as the witness to the Gentiles comes into focus, that, that, that becomes kind of the main thrust in the story. So Antioch was the third largest city in Rome in the Roman Empire and became the key mission base for Gentile outreach for the church. So the account of its formation is really important because it's showing us, it's telling us how the church is now being established to the ends of the earth. This, this thing, this institution, this new covenant community is growing. It's spreading. It is like wildfire. And the leadership of this church reflects this. It's a very diverse from different ethnicities, nationalities, social status. Right? There's Barnabas, a Jew. Simeon, a Gentile. Lucius of Cyrene, also a Gentile. Saul, a Jew. Right, another indicator to us that the church has now incorporated the, the kind of the outcast category of Isaiah 56, 8. But it's also an indicator that it's now ready, the church is now ready to, to go full ahead to the mission to the Gentiles, which is the last section we're going to cover. But I'll pause here for comments, questions. Yes, yes. And I... Yeah, I find it most convincing pretty much in chapter 8 with Philip, but he's going to lump in 9, 10, and 11 in that category. Um, I see less evidence for that, but I see what he's doing. But yes, that's, that is what's happening. In a, in a previous chapter, he also made the distinction between God-fearing pagans, which the eunuch would be one, Cornelius would be that, those that, for whatever reason... Um, or God-fearing Gentiles. They weren't, they weren't completely lost in the pagan idolatry. Anything else? 
So as we think about the church being established to the Gentiles, there are several ways we can think about Paul's missionary journeys. I mean, there's a ton of stuff written on it. I was just looking at it this week. A lot of different books, a lot of different directions commentators go, which are all really helpful. Well, not all of them are helpful. Some of them are probably garbage, but some of them are probably helpful. Anyways, what Schreiner does is he focuses on key places that, that represent the welcoming of the welcoming in of all peoples into the kingdom of God. This is something he's touched on quite a bit in this book. We touched on it last week with these, this, this chart of concentric circles of different the diversity of Gentiles and Acts. Just as we saw, there's a diversity of Jews in chapters 1 through 7. There's also a diversity of Gentiles. And the point Luke is highlighting, or the point is Luke is highlighting the inclusion of these people in Paul's missionary journeys. He's, he's highlighting the acceptance or the positive, positive acceptance of the Word of God and the message of salvation. And he's doing this to make the simple point that I've said over and over again in this study, that all peoples are welcomed to the New Covenant community. All peoples, all different types of peoples are welcomed into the church. That's, that's the, the clear message that we see as we read these missionary journeys. And you see this down on, on the sheet on table 6.6, all types of peoples. Island dwellers, the rustic, Romans, the intellectual or philosophical elite, pagan idolaters, the political center of the empire. Paul takes the gospel to all these places and groups, and some from each are saved, incorporated into the church. And notice the place that corresponds to each of these groups. You have Cyprus, Lystra, Philippi, Athens, Ephesus, and, and Rome. And so just with our remaining time, Schreiner goes through all of these places, and, and I think it's, it's really interesting stuff, but I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm going to go through some of these places and see what we can gain from looking at some of Paul's missionary journey. But I think that the point's going to be obviously clear by the end, if it's not already obviously clear. So Paul's mission to the Gentiles begins in him going to Cyprus in Acts 13. And I think it's helpful to think of the first two locations of Cyprus and Lystra together because of the contrast of the places. And the first thing that Schreiner points out is that Cyprus is an island where the, the prominent Gentile, it's a Sergius Paulus, comes to faith. And he, we read in the text, was an intelligent man and a governing authority. So clearly he was a man who held a high status, and we see that God saved him. He, he is the first named Gentile to convert on this mission, and a very prominent one. So what does this tell us? Luke, Luke shows us that the gospel message is even for the educated elite, the high class, the high level elites in a society. Which so much in Acts, rightly, is made of the lowly and oppressed and physically broken who get saved. Something, sometimes I think we can miss this point, which is key, God came to save the elites too. There isn't something inherently wrong with being intelligent or, or powerful in a society. Although I think probably much of our culture does deem elites badly. Um, 
God can save even them. God saves all types of people. And the contrast of this can be found, I think, in the very next narrative in the location of Lystra, Acts 14, 8 through 20. So I, I read uh, just, the, I think I read the three commentaries on, on Acts here, and they all made the same point that Lystra is known as a backwater, rustic country place. The people were known as, um, I think this is in the Shriner book, they were known as mountain dwellers who lived in remote caves. So kind of the exact opposite of the intelligent elites of society. Um, he calls them the rustic. That's just a fancy way of saying backwater. I don't know. I want to be called rustic. Okay. And what happens in the story is that Paul heals a lame man, and the crowds shout in 1411, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So, so they, they, they think that Paul and Barnabas are gods. They did this remarkable miracle. They think they're gods. Paul and Barnabas respond well, thankfully. They explain to the people they are not gods, but they're creatures. They're men just like them. Shriner has a great line here. I just have to read this. One of my favorite lines in the book. It says, Paul and Barnabas came not to introduce idolatry, but to destroy it. That's great. So Paul and Barnabas disclose their true identity and the identity of God, who they worship. And I think we can imply some were saved there because later Paul visits Lystra to strengthen the souls of the, the disciples there. So, so some were saved, even though the response actually he gets the, the Jews come and stone him. Um, doesn't end well, it looks like, on the surface. So from these first two locations, we see the elite Gentile get saved. And what Schreiner again calls the, the rustic folks get saved. The church is being established to the Gentiles and all types of Gentiles, which is good news for all of us because we're not all of the same social class, intelligence, wealth, all of that. There's a diversity of that even in this room. And then if you think about the church globally, that, that's definitely the case. So this is wonderful news. I'm going to skip Philippi. So there's good stuff there. And move to Athens, which is we find in Acts 17. Athens is where Paul encounters and evangelizes what, what, what we could just call the philosophic crowd. Athens was still then, at this time, when Paul goes there, the center of Greek philosophy because of its clear associations with Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. And Luke pretty clearly includes clear indications in the narrative that emphasize this, this, the philosophical nature of Athens. So he's not trying to hide this. Like He's making it pretty clear if you read Acts 17 in the narrative and the details he chooses to include. He mentions um, Epicure Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Most clearly, I think, is in Paul's address in Athens. Paul deploys philosophical language with the Athenians to make the point that God can be known through Jesus Christ. So Paul speaks to them we could say in the philosophical language of the day, and even quotes their poets, he alludes to their traditions, all for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel and in order to completely transform their, their pagan worldview. And when Paul speaks on, on Jesus' resurrection from the dead 
is when the Athenian, Athenians cut him off and they, they, they mock him. So some see Paul's mission here to, in Athens as a failure, but, but notice, read in 1734, that some were saved and joined the disciples. Some got saved. They became part of the New Covenant community, the church. So then Athens is not a failed mission, and it again shows us very clearly that all people, even the philosophically sophisticated, can and will be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's elect from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and every kind of diversity within those nations. Okay, so I'm, I think that the point is pretty clear. You can read the rest of those accounts from the different locations in, in the book. But I think the point's clear. The Gentiles are now welcome into the people of God. And we learn through Paul's missionary journey that it's literally all types of Gentiles. Doesn't matter social status, education, wealth. All that matters is a positive response to the gospel. All that matters is a positive response to the gospel, the message of salvation. And this is how the church is established. This is how the church is established in Acts. And this is how the church grows. And this is how it grows today. Only through gospel proclamation and the reception of salvation by those who trust in Christ and repent. So just to conclude here, God's plan from all eternity was to, to form a community of his people that, that bore his name. So we can see then that the church is not just some side story in God's work in the world. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The church is central to God's plan. Schreiner writes that if people want, want to be caught up in what God is doing in the world, then the stage upon which this play is unfolding is the church. The church is the hot spot where God works, where his glory is displayed. I think this is a largely that's a, that's a right statement if we clarify it in some ways. But I think it's right. It's not to say that God doesn't work in any other area or institution of the world. Of course, we know that he works through families. He works through nations. That's clear in Scripture. But the central place, the central place for God's activity in this age is the church. And that's what we see in Acts. God works in this world through his people, through the new covenant community. And that's what we see and Acts, that's what we see today. That's all I have for us today. We actually finished a lot sooner than I thought, so my bad. I rushed us through there. Um, but any last questions or comments? Next week, we're going to take a break from this study. We're going to hear from one of our um, workers that we support, missionary workers, Eric Katsung. He's going to give a, an update on his ministry. But any final questions, comments? Like senators. You only get two of them. There you go. All right. You guys are dismissed. <laughs>